Christianity, you know, the way, as they used to call it in the first century, <laughs> is different than every other religion and every other philosophy and every other worldview, uh, every other path to enlightenment because of Jesus Christ, because he did something for mankind that no one else could do. There was no other religious leader or philosopher. None of the great thinkers or spiritual leaders throughout history have ever had the ability or the desire, for that matter, to do what Jesus did, which was to take on the world's sin and die horribly so that we might overcome death, our death, by his. It only works because he was God in the flesh. He's the only one who could ever accomplish what he did by dying for us. Wouldn't have worked if anyone else had done that. And so every other belief system, every other religion can at best only offer us a temporary sense of relief or peace or joy or fulfillment through our own effort. And whether that's self-mutilation or paying some form of penance or uh, uh, seeking enlightenment through meditation, all of it requires us to reach some level of achievement in order for the reward to be experienced. And so it's quite the opposite of Christianity because in other religions, you strive for your religion to attain temporary fulfillment. In Christianity, you strive for Christ because he's already given you eternal fulfillment. You see the difference? With Christianity, the payoff comes first. Whatever you do after that does not and cannot in any measure pay back or justify the reward that you've already been given because that part is a free gift. The reason that we run the race and fight the, the good fight, as Paul said, is because we want to, first of all, honor the God who bestowed that gift upon us. And secondly, because we want as many others as possible to experience that reward as well. Okay, so as Christ followers, although there is reward associated with our efforts and with our good deeds and the things we do for Christ, it's true. But we're not working uh, for God so that we can get something. We're working for God because of what he's already given us. We already have it and we want to share that with other people. Uh, there is quite literally the opposite uh, when you look at other religions, how they work. And that should be no surprise to us. Because actually everything that Jesus did seemed to go against convention, against religious convention and against societal convention. He was completely counter to his culture and the expectations of culture. And nowhere does that show up more than on Palm Sunday, also known as Passion Sunday, which of course we're celebrating today, the week before Resurrection Sunday or Easter. And so we're going to talk about some of those paradigm-shattering aspects of Jesus' life that we should constantly be reminding ourselves of, particularly on these days, uh, when we pause to recognize the greatest singular achievement in all of human history, the atoning work of Jesus Christ through his death and subsequent resurrection, which, of course, we'll be talking about this week and next. This is not only a time of celebration, for what he's done for us. It is that, but it's also a time of reflection, of course, on the life of Christ, but also on our own lives. We should at these times be reflecting on our own lives as we think about the context uh, with, with which our faith is in, because if all that we do is study the life and death and resurrection of Christ without any personal response to that knowledge, then all we're doing is learning history together, and that's dead religion. It does us no good. So as we celebrate what Jesus did for us and we reflect on how he lived his life, uh, we're also going to take some time to reflect on the implications of that life 
as it applies to our own lives today in our message entitled Passion. Uh, the Sunday before Easter is traditionally referred to as Palm Sunday or Passion Sunday, as I mentioned, where we celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem the week before his death and resurrection. We use the term Palm Sunday uh, because as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, the crowds cut palm branches from the trees and threw them down on the road before him. They waved them in the air because palm branches symbolize for the Jewish nation uh, nationalism and victory in their culture. It's part of what they would do when a king would return from a victorious battle. And they were expecting great things from Jesus in that moment, including liberation, they hoped, from the Roman occupation by force, if necessary. They expected him to lead them in a, in a rebellion to overthrow the Roman occupation. But we also refer to that day, of this day, as Passion Sunday. In fact, uh, the entire week is, is often referred to as Passion Week or Holy Week. So you have Maundy Thursday, which in, uh, commemorates the Passover Supper or the Last Supper. And then we have Good Friday, uh, which commemorates, of course, the crucifixion. And then Holy Saturday, which recognizes Jesus' time in the tomb. And then Passion Week concludes on Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday, obviously celebrating the resurrection. So the English word passion has its roots in a Latin word called passio, which means suffering. And so in the earliest Latin translations of the Bible, all the way back to the second century AD, the word passio or passion was exclusively used as a theological term referring to the death of Christ. That's the only time the word was used originally. But like most words in the English language, the meaning of the word passion has evolved over the centuries. And in the, the earliest stages of that evolution, it began to take on a broader meaning beyond solely the death of Christ, but even into suffering and the, the way that he lived his life for us. And then sometime in the 13th century uh, on up till today, the word passion has come to really describe just about any strong emotion. Uh, and because of that, my personal feeling is that the word passio or passion has really lost a lot of its potency because it's, I think, overused in our language now. But again, its roots lie in the sufferings of Christ during the final, uh, his final week of life on earth leading up to and including the crucifixion and resurrection. And so what's so compelling about that to me is the application of the whole concept of passion, uh, Christ's passion, true passion, to that final week of his life on earth compared to the way that we apply that to our lives today and uh, what we can learn maybe by reflecting on the difference there. In other words, it's not necessarily wrong that the word passion has a broader meaning now than it did then. Uh, but still, if we can grasp what passion in the life of Christ looked like, we stand, I think, to gain a whole new perspective on how to live with true passion, Christ-like passion, in our own lives today. And so I'd pose this question this morning. Are we truly living our lives with Christ-like passion? Uh, I would contend that on the whole, what, what we would typically describe as passionate behavior in our culture today doesn't look like passion in the life of Christ then. And certainly it's not a new phenomenon because it's not just as if it's only today. Jesus has been shattering people's expectations from the day he showed up on the earth in human skin. But just to hone in on the Passion Week, that one week, that final week of his life before the crucifixion, just in that one week, Jesus systematically disappoints the expectations of everyone around him as each day progresses through the story. And uh, disappointment is simply the result of unmet expectations, right? We, 
Everyone has expectations in this life. Everything, uh, everything has an expectation attached to it. You think about uh, the drink you're about to take a gulp out of. You ever picked up an unsweet iced tea when you thought it was sweet iced tea? Or vice versa if you like to drink unsweet iced tea? You ever picked up a drink at Starbucks and it wasn't what you ordered? And you didn't realize it until you took that first gulp? What happens when you take that first gulp? It's like shock and disappointment, right? Because our expectations were unmet. The same applies to the rest of our lives. The vast majority of marriages, I would say, uh, are a result of unmet expectations. Certainly in my counseling experience, um, we thought it was going to be one way. And as soon as we realized that it isn't the way that we thought it would be, we're shocked and disappointed. Unmet expectations. Jesus, particularly in that final week of his life, was the definition of unmet expectations for both Jews and Gentiles. The Jews expected a king in the line and tradition of David to come riding in on a war horse. And what they got instead was a man in peasant's clothing accompanied by common people riding on a donkey that symbolized peace. They expected validation as God's chosen people for, for Jesus to validate them and their culture and behavior. And what they got instead was driven out of the temple uh, by Jesus with a whip for their sin. They expected religious pretension and arrogance. And what they got instead was a man willing to give himself up for the very people who were mocking him and beating him and cursing him and ultimately killing him. For the Jews... Jesus was one unmet expectation after another during that week. And to the Gentiles, the cross was foolishness. In Acts 17, we saw the Apostle Paul a few weeks ago in Athens teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles in their learning center, the, the greatest minds of all time, right? But it was foolishness to them because the Gentiles believed in human reason above all else. As George Renaud uh, puts it so well, he said, Reason tells you that babies aren't born to virgin girls. Reason tells you that God doesn't become flesh. Reason tells you that Almighty God will not allow puny men to nail him to a cross. Reason tells you that when a man dies, he cannot be resurrected back to life. None of that makes any sense. So the Gentiles look at the cross as pure foolishness. Jesus just simply did not meet anyone's expectations, and yet he lived and died with such great passion and accomplished far beyond what any could have ever expected. So, maybe passion isn't exactly what we think it is. True passion. Maybe it doesn't look like exactly what we think it does. What, what would our lives look like if we lived with the kind of passion that Jesus lived with? Maybe as followers of Jesus Christ, if we lived with, with that kind of passion, the kind that he lived with, maybe, maybe we would shatter some expectations as well. So we're going to jump into our text this morning and we'll see what we can learn about the passion of Jesus Christ, not only in his death, but in his life as well. We'll be reading the gospel according to John chapter 12. And we're going to go through verses 12 through 28 for our main text today. Okay, we'll pick up some other scriptures as well. Like we usually do. This is uh, picking up the story just as Jesus is making his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So let's read that together. John chapter 12, starting at verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. 
And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. <clears throat> so, devout Jews were gathering in Jerusalem for the Passover feast, which was normal. Verse 12 describes it as a large crowd, and actually, scholars estimate that crowd was probably over 2 million people. So I don't know that we've ever had a, a cinematic a rendering of this event um, certainly not any that I've seen that even comes close to what the scene was actually like. The immensity of the crowd gathering uh, to hail the entrance of the one that they'd expected would lead a revolt against the Roman oppressors. You watch the movies and, you know, there's a couple hundred people out there along the street waving their palm branches and shouting. How about two plus million people? And they're shouting a couple of verses from Psalm 118, one of the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, the Psalms of Ascent, there's 15 or so psalms that, that the Jewish people would sing as they would ascend into the great city for the three uh, big feasts each year. Okay? And they're singing uh, and shouting a couple of those verses from Psalm 118. We know that from Luke 19, shortly after this, Jesus weeps over the city because of his great passion for the people, which is driving him to do what would otherwise be unthinkable, to give up his life for them. And yet... If this had been anyone else, probably any one of us, definitely me, <clears throat> it would seem only appropriate and justifiable to find the biggest, best looking, most fit and intimidating war horse. I'd have been sitting up on top of that, that beast, the biggest, most intimidating animal I could find and ride that guy right into Jerusalem in front of two million people chanting your name and declaring you king of Israel. That's really the only animal that's befitting a king. And yet Jesus rides in on a donkey, the exact opposite of what you'd expect. But why? Why in the world, given the opportunity before him to impress that many people, the people that he loves, that he's so passionate about, why would he choose a donkey to ride into the city? The answer is because true passion leaves no room for ego or arrogance. Christ-like passion is clothed in humility. That's the first point of our outline this morning. Everything that Jesus did was done with a humble heart. In fact, his entrance into Jerusalem uh, on that donkey was prophesied about 500 years earlier in Zechariah 9.9, describes uh, the coming of this humble king. On the back of a donkey, it reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. True passion, Christ-like passion, is always clothed in humility. There's no room for ego or self-centeredness or arrogance. And it's not, it's not a false humility either. It's not simply acting a certain way in front of other people. True humility is actually the state of one's Heart In uh, Colossians 3.12, Paul writes, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. And we know that the word passion refers to suffering. We've already talked about that. The word compassion or compassionate in verse 12 uh, means co-suffering. Okay? Or suffering together. So in other words, Paul says, Make your hearts like Christ's. Make your hearts compassionate. Hearts that suffer for each other. With each other. And then if we look at the rest of that verse, Paul explains what having a compassionate heart looks like. Uh, again, Colossians 3.12 with the rest of the verse added in. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, 
holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And this agrees with all throughout Scripture, how we're to weep with one another, suffer with one another, rejoice with one another, right? That word humility in this verse, which is used all throughout the Old Testament, I mean the New Testament, in the original Greek, it literally means a deep sense of one's littleness. Think about that. A deep sense of one's littleness. That's not simply acting humble. You know, saying the right things, even doing the right things. It's more than that. True humility is a deep sense of one's own littleness. When we merely act humble, but we're not truly humble in heart, when we don't have that deep sense of our own littleness, what we're actually doing is a form of pride. It's the very opposite because we're pretending to be something that we're not in order to make ourselves look better in the eyes of, of other people. It's a false humility. But if we're going to live truly passionate lives, we have to be truly humble, which means that even when we don't agree with one another in our marriages, at work, in our families, we still submit to one another in love and in humility. And as Paul goes on to say in Colossians 3, in the next verse, verse 13, he says, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. You see, we tend to think of passion as going for it all. And the more loud and proud we are about a cause or a candidate or a relationship or something in our lives, the more passionate that we are about that. But just as Jesus shattered the expectations of everyone as he, he rode into town on a lowly donkey, so too must we if we really want to live with passion, passion in our marriages. Passion in our jobs, passion in relationships, in our families, in our ministry. We have to have a deep sense of our own littleness. And I would add an even deeper sense of the greatness of God, which is why we worship. And then we humble ourselves before Him and others because true humility, that deep sense of one's own littleness, is one of the hallmarks of true passion. Okay? That's what Jesus modeled for us as he entered Jerusalem. Let's keep reading. Verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Verse 16 says that not even Jesus' closest friends understood everything that was happening. And I'll just mention here that if you follow Christ in your life and keep your heart humbled toward him and toward others, and you follow the leading of the Holy Spirit in your own life, there will be times when other people, including your closest friends, uh, maybe your family will not always understand why you're doing what you're doing or saying what you're saying or helping who you're helping or going where you're going and so on. Because following Christ passionately often looks like the opposite of what we think it should look like. And so as we pursue his leading with true humility, others will, they absolutely will question your choices. 
and your decisions and your actions and your direction. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you've experienced what I'm talking about firsthand. And for those of you who haven't, just go ahead and write this down and post it on your refrigerator with a little magnet for future reference. When you live with Christ-like passion, you will be misunderstood. It's a fact. You will be misunderstood by the world, of course, but also by other Christians, even your friends, even your best friends, and sometimes even your family members, because Christ-like passion looks nothing like worldly passion, what the world thinks is passion. Okay, we read this passage at our community group the other night in Luke chapter 14, verses 26 through 33. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. What? Yes, even his own life. Huh? He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What are you talking about? For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish... All who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, as any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple... Like, seriously, Jesus? That's a lot of stuff to give up. Now, people get confused about this passage, and I understand that. Because we're supposed to love each other and take care of each other. So why does Jesus say, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That word hate, in verse 26, was a Semitic expression. It was a common expression for the Jewish people. It meant to love less. Okay, it doesn't mean hate the way that we understand hate. In other words, Jesus was saying, you have to love me more than anything or anyone else in your life, including, and by the way, especially yourself. What does that mean? It goes right back to humility. You have to have a deep sense of your own littleness next to God. And so when he calls you to quit your job and sell everything and move 5,000 miles away to the Arctic and you're from South Carolina in the sunshine, like you did for my family and I, your friends won't understand that. They didn't. Your family may not understand of that. Some of them didn't. Uh, some people will look, like, uh, look at you like you're crazy, and I experienced that several times. But I wasn't crazy at all. It's just that for the first time in my life, I was truly passionate about following Jesus Christ. And so I had to humble myself, sell my belongings, become someone's employee again. You want to talk about difficult? I'd been self-employed uh, for over 10 years at that point. I had to go back to school with a bunch of little snotty kids out of high school and sit in college classes. Are you kidding me? I wanted to smack half of them. <laughs> I was earning a fifth of the income that I had been used to because of a business that I built. Me, I thought. You talk about humbling. I'd go live in a one-bedroom, one-bathroom apartment that we squeezed some other sleeping areas into inside the church and look at my kids in the eye and tell them why I couldn't give them any of the things I used to. 
I had a deep sense of my own littleness. But I had a passion for Christ. I had a passion to follow him. And it was greater than my passion to satisfy my own material desires for the first time in my life. And a lot of people couldn't understand that. And that's okay. Because I knew I was right where he wanted me to be. All right? When you live with Christ-like passion, you'll be humble. At times, you will definitely be misunderstood. We even see that with Jesus when his closest friends didn't understand his entrance into Jerusalem until much later. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will, uh, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And so Jesus, just as he continues to just annihilate him, he's torpedoing people's expectations. He says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He's teaching them just before he models for them uh, the third point in this message, which is that Christ-like passion always leads to sacrifice. Christ-like passion in your life will always lead you to sacrifice. There's, there's no way around this aspect of following Christ and living with passion like he did. It doesn't keep us from trying. I tried for most of my life to follow Jesus Christ and to satisfy all of my personal desires at the same time. But it does not work. You simply cannot live with true passion and not experience life-altering sacrifice. Because living for Christ means dying to ourselves. By definition. Right? Luke 14, 27. Jesus said, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be. My disciple cannot be my disciple. He didn't really leave a whole lot of room there for debate, did he? Not a lot of room for alternate interpretations or lengthy discussions about what he may have been trying to say. He simply said, whoever does not bear his own cross, which means to embrace God's will no matter what it cost us, even our own death, and come after me, cannot be my disciple. That is shocking if you really stop and think about the implications. And yet I believe that in the modern church, at least in the West, we have made that requirement by Jesus himself quite optional for us today. He said, you have no choice. If you want to be my disciple, you have no choice but to sacrifice everything else in your life to put me first. But we treat that non-negotiable command by Jesus as if it's optional. We've hijacked the doctrines of free will and unmerited grace to become some kind of easy gospel that requires nothing more of us than to say some kind of sinner's prayer at an altar and then just continue living as if we, uh, nothing changed without ever giving anything up for Jesus Christ. And I'm afraid that many professing Christians are in for a very rude awakening. I was. When the realization finally comes in this life or in the next that without total sacrifice... 
without giving up every single thing in our lives that usurps the lordship of Jesus Christ in our hearts, we cannot be his disciples. I didn't say it. He did. Don't be mad at me. Following Jesus will always, without exception, require you to sacrifice. That doesn't mean everybody needs to sell everything they have and go to the Arctic, by the way. That's what it meant for me, because that's what he needed me to do to put him first. It's different for everybody. Okay? It's whatever he's calling you to put to death, namely yourself. Whatever that thing is in your heart that is in place of Christ or before Christ, you got to kill it, man. That's what he says. You cannot be his disciple until you crucify that and put him in first place. No way around it. Has nothing to do with earning our salvation, by the way. We cannot earn our salvation. Rather, it has everything to do with being able to follow him where he leads. This is the point. You can't scale the mountain that he's calling you to climb as long as you have all of your earthly possessions and relationships and dreams and desires that have become idols in your life strapped onto your back. Jesus isn't saying the only way that you can earn your salvation is to work really, really hard at it. He's not saying that at all. That's a, that's a free gift. We don't earn that at all. He's saying the only way that you'll be able to follow me where I'm trying to lead you is if you let go of everything else in your life that is weighing you down. And that means we have to sacrifice everything that weighs us down. And that's not easy to do. Sacrifice rarely feels safe. Sacrifice is not conservative. It's actually very risky. Sacrifice is uncomfortable. But sacrifice is also giving something up in order to gain something better. And Jesus understood that. He had that kind of passion to do the will of the Father. The kind of passion that gives up everything else necessary to be able to follow God. Okay, let's finish our text for this morning. Verses 26 and 27. And I think it's 27 through 28. Isn't that right? Yeah, sorry. 27 through 28. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. Okay. The word troubled in verse 27 is the Greek word terasso, which means to be stirred up, unsettled. So just after explaining that his time to die has come. Back in verse 23, Jesus asked a rhetorical question. He says, is my soul stirred up, unsettled? You bet it was. Of course it was. He said that it was. We know that later in his prayer in Gethsemane. His soul was stirred. So he continues, what should I do? Should I beg the Father to spare me? Yeah. Yeah, he does. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays to the Father. But at the same time, he understands that even though... His desire is for something else. He must be obedient to the Father's will no matter the cost. You want to talk about sacrifice. So he answers his own question. He says, I know that it is for this purpose to die. That's why I'm here. And so I must be obedient to my calling. And he expresses that when he says, Father, glorify your name. See, Jesus knew that in his death the Father would be glorified. In other words, I'll be obedient to the calling before me, no matter how difficult this thing gets. Christ-like passion means total obedience to the Father's will. 
And again, I think that's one of those aspects of true passion that we get uh, mixed up about because we tend to associate passion with really strong feelings, not necessarily with denying our really strong feelings in order to satisfy the will of the Father. But that's exactly what Jesus was doing here. He was denying his own really strong feelings in order to satisfy the Father's will. He was obedient to his calling at the expense of his own feelings. That's true passion, the willingness to give up what we want for the sake of what the Father wants. And if you've been following Jesus for any amount of time at all, you understand quite well how difficult that can be. It's so hard sometimes for me to deny myself what I want in deference to what he wants. It's very hard for me to do sometimes. I still want to choose to do what I want because my Christ-like passion has yet to be perfected in me. But there's some strong words in Scripture about obedience. Luke 6:46. Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? In other words, you can't call me Lord if you don't do what I tell you to do. If you refuse to obey my commands, clearly I am then not your Lord. Right? Confession without obedience is worthless. It means nothing. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 7, 21. He also said, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Luke 8, 21. In Luke eleven twenty eight, he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Okay, confession without obedience is worthless. Means nothing. And Jesus shows us by his own actions. That true passion means being obedient to the will of God in our lives, even at the expense of our own feelings, if need be. Right? I get a call at 1.45 in the morning that my brother is dead. I wanted to curl up into a ball, tell everybody to leave me alone, and take about two weeks off. But that's not what Jesus called me to do. He said, get out of bed, cry your way through your shower, get in the car, drive to Columbia, because I've got things for you to do. Sometimes our feelings are right in line with the will of the Father. That's always preferable to me. But there are times when there's anything but. Sometimes what he wants is not at all in line with what we want or what we feel. And that is when the metal of your Christ-like passion will be tested through your obedience. So, do you want to be passionate about your marriage? Then be humble. Be obedient. Be willing to sacrifice, knowing that at times you're going to be misunderstood. You want to be passionate about your work? You need to be humble. Be obedient. You need to be willing to sacrifice and accept that your coworkers won't always understand your motivation to go above and beyond when you don't have to. You want to be passionate about God and your ministry? Then be humble. Be obedient. Willing to sacrifice. Understanding that at times you're going to be misunderstood. That is the definition of passion. And by the way, 
By the way, that is also the recipe for achievement in your life. When you live with Christ-like passion, no one in history ever accomplished anything, anything great, without passion. You want to move beyond where you are in your life today? You'll never be able to move beyond where you are without true Christ-like passion in your life. No one has ever achieved anything great by being indifferent, by being content with the status quo, by doing their own will instead of the will of the Father's. But when driven by true passion, we see God accomplish great things, amazing things throughout history through people who lived with a true sense of passion consistently. This church will never be able to move beyond where it is without people who are passionate. Passionate about God. Passionate about their relationship with Him. Passionate about answering the calling on their life. Passionate about the vision of this church to go beyond where we are now in order to reach people on a larger scale. To affect our local culture for the sake of the kingdom of God. To plant other churches. To spread the gospel at home and abroad. We won't accomplish any of that with any degree of sustained success without passionate people who are passionate for that vision. We must have passion. Christ-like passion. We have to be humble. We have to be obedient. We must be willing to sacrifice, to, to give something up in order to gain something better, knowing that we will often be misunderstood. And of course, if you need a picture of what that looks like, an example, you need not look any further than what Jesus did for you and me. His ultimate sacrifice for us on the cross. He was humble. He was obedient. He was greatly misunderstood. And he sacrificed everything for you and for me. So to repeat the question from the beginning of this message, do we truly have passion in our lives? I'll let you chew on that one on your own time. But if you want to move beyond your current status, you'll have to. You'll have to have true passion in your life. And now that we know what that means, if you haven't already, you can begin to live a truly passionate life for Christ. You've got to be humble. You've got to be obedient. You've got to be willing to sacrifice and be willing to be misunderstood. I want to ask our ushers to come if they would. Um, 